0: And please turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew's Gospel chapter 27. And as you turn there, I also ask that you join me in prayer uh, for a request I, my memory failed me on. As we remember, one of our members, Millie Cook, is still on a mission trip to the Philippines, a medical missions trip. Let's just uh, take a moment to pray for her and her team as they wrap things up these few days. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the Gospel that goes out in many ways, through many people, and we pray for Millie and for her team, for Cheryl and others, as they seek to meet the medical needs of those on these islands in the Philippines. We pray for their partnership with the local church to be strengthened. We pray that those whose bodies they minister to would also have their souls ministered to by the people of God, speaking the word of truth and life to them. And we pray that long after Cheryl and Millie and others are gone, that the local church will have an impact on the lives of those who... Uh, came seeking a temporary healing and have found the answer to their deepest need. Uh, We pray that you would guide Millie as she returns to us in the coming days, that she would have safe travels and return to us with a good report. And we praise you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two and a half years in Matthew's gospel. Five sermons remain. We will be looking at the death. The consequences of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the consequences of the resurrection in the coming five weeks. And so this morning we'll be looking at Matthew 27 verses 45 through 50. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema Sabakhtani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filling it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, no, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. There's an interesting phrase that we use in the English language God forsaken. Let's get out of this God forsaken country. I can't wait to leave this God forsaken company. What do we mean when we call something God forsaken? What it means is we believe that it is devoid of beauty, of order, of peace, of goodness. And whether we intend to or not, we are attributing those things that we would desire to God. Because God has forsaken this place, this country, this company, whatever it is, therefore it does not have goodness to it. We're going to see this morning about the God-forsaken moment of Jesus on the cross. And I'm going to take a different approach to the passage than you're used to, than I usually do as we preach through. Normally we go, we spread out the time going through each of the verses. I'm going to do that rather quickly in the beginning. And then we're going to circle back around to that one moment, that cry in verse 46, where Jesus cries out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're going to talk about what that means. And looking at Scripture, we're going to see if there is an answer to that question. So let's begin. Because in this passage, if you've been following with us, Jesus, having, been, having suffered and been publicly shamed, is now finally nailed to the cross to die. And as is fitting for such a significant event, the sky is, is supernaturally darkened at the sixth hour, which would have been noon. And we'll discuss in a few minutes why that is and what that means. And Jesus cries out this, this why have you forsaken me? which is a quote from Psalm 22, the very first line of Psalm 22. And Randy did a great job last week as we looked at the previous passage showing us how so much of what was going on at the cross, the casting of lots for His clothes, the the very words that people used to mock Him are all in Psalm 22, the cry of the man forsaken by God. But those who hear Him say this, Don't understand. In verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it say, this man's calling Elijah. Now, the reason they had that misunderstanding is because Jesus, uh, when he cried out, he wasn't speaking the common language that he spoke every day and that everyone around him that was Jewish would have been speaking. That would have been Aramaic. He instead quotes Psalm 22 in the ancient Hebrew. And so, in ancient Hebrew, my God, my God, Elia, Elia, would sound a lot like Elijah, Elijah, wouldn't it? so they misunderstand him, and, and the reason they misunderstand him um, is because in the folklore of the Jews of the day, Elijah was uh, this legendary figure who would come and rescue you if you were suffering unjustly. They believed that if you were being persecuted, if you'd done nothing wrong and you were still being persecuted, you could call upon Elijah, and if indeed you were without guilt, Elijah would come to your rescue which is why in verse 49, some of them joke, okay, well, let's see. Let's see if he's, if he's guiltless. Is Elijah going to come and rescue him? No. Okay, well, then he deserves to be up there. Meanwhile, someone else dips a sponge in a bucket of sour wine, which uh, is something that the Roman soldiers would have had on hand for themselves to refresh their thirst. Uh, it's kind of a bitter but also sweet type of wine, and they would, they would drink that because they were going to be out there all day watching these criminals hang. And uh, so someone takes a sponge and holds it up. Now, they might have been doing it out of compassion. They might have been doing it to mock him and extend his suffering. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But whatever the reason, they were unknowingly fulfilling another psalm, Psalm 69, which if we read it in context, says this, Save me, O God. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so after seeing one fulfillment of prophecy after another, in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And so if we were to go through that, it's worth noting all the times that Scripture is fulfilled to see the, the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God over all this. It's worth pondering the callous and cruel treatment and the taunting and the unfairness of what's happening. It's worth considering the painfulness, the physical agony Jesus went through. But what we're really going to focus on this morning is that verse 46, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, "Eli." Elia lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry that many of us might feel like we resonate with. You know, do we feel connected to that? Do we feel that God has forsaken us? And if so, what truth, what help, what comfort can we get from the cry of Jesus on the cross? To forsake is to abandon to give up on something, to turn your back on it, to reject it. Now, is Jesus quoting this psalm simply to draw attention to the fact that it's being fulfilled before their very eyes? Perhaps remembering that the psalm that begins with a cry of rejection is going to end with these words. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. So is Jesus pointing out that, yes, I'm suffering now, but the end of it's going to be that many will hear of the goodness of God and will worship Him. Is that His reason for quoting this? Despite His torture and pain and apparent defeat, Jesus is remembering that it ends with victory. I wouldn't doubt that there is a degree of that in the mind of Jesus as He's suffering. But what I want us to see in Scripture today is that Jesus was indeed forsaken by God on the cross. And it is important that we understand why. Any discussion about the nature of Christ as the second person of the Godhead, as God the Son, and how He could be abandoned or forsaken by God the Father, and how that works metaphysically, that's a discussion for another time. We're not getting into that, because more important today than knowing how it happened is answering the question of why it happened. That's the question that Jesus asks, why have you forsaken me? And as we look at the story of Scripture and the gospel in which we've placed our hope, I will propose two question, two answers to that question, two answers that go hand in hand. The first is that Jesus was forsaken because God condemns sin. To understand that and why that is necessary and important, we have to go back. We have to go way, way back, like, like Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, way back, and understand what happened there. Because Adam and Eve don't just show up in the story of Scripture by accident or coincidence. They are created. And creation implies and and, and entails purpose. There's a purpose to the creation of mankind. Adam and Eve are created for God. They're created to have fellowship with God. They're made in God's image. They reflect who God is and they're made to praise Him and to continue His work of creation and care. And in doing so, they have a fellowship, a community, a closeness with the God who made them. And in a sense, we all, despite the years in between us and Adam and Eve, despite the way in which sin has marred the image of God in us, we still experience this, the desire for fellowship with God. Augustine, the church leader in the 5th century, famously wrote, You've made us for Yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. We were made to have closeness, fellowship with God, and we ache when we don't have that. And the history of humankind is the pursuit of satisfaction of that desire in countless other things. But there's a reason we aren't satisfied, the reason we don't have that fellowship Because we were made to have fellowship with God, but we were made to have fellowship with a holy God. A holy God. The psalmist describes it in this way. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Because God is holy, He cannot be united to sin. It's who He is. It's not possible. The Apostle John writes it this way in First John chapter 1. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John is doing a great job of putting before us this imagery of light and darkness. If you have light, by definition you don't have darkness. And if you have utter darkness... It ends when there is light. And likewise with God, He is unapproachable, perfect, pure light. And there can be no darkness in Him. And so though we were made to have fellowship with God, when sin entered into us, that fellowship became impossible because He is light. And we have dark the darkness of sin in us. And so though Adam and Eve were made perfectly for fellowship with God, they chose sin, when they chose their own way, when they said, I will define which way is good and right and not obey God's command, His one simple command, they cut themselves off from fellowship. And look what the Lord did in Genesis 3. He drove out the man, drove them out from the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the fate of all the children of Adam and Eve. We all find ourselves desiring the joy of being with God because it's what we were made for. And yet because of sin, we are forsaken. We are cast away. We are driven out of His presence and a great, great mighty cherubim with a flaming sword stands in between us and the Lord and all who are not holy cannot approach at the cost of their lives. We are forsaken. And what that means in Scripture is no small thing. In Romans 6, we are told that the wages of sin is death. And Scripture is clear that that's not just the body, that's not just physical death. Death in Scripture, as the wages of sin is being cut off from God, from fellowship, from the source of life, to be separated from God eternally. Not just really bad people, not just those who enjoy their sin and delight in it, Everyone. Everyone, because sin is not a matter of degrees. How sinful are you? Sin is a matter of lordship. Whose word do you follow, your own or God's? As I was trying to think of how to explain that, my mind went back to my my days in marching band. I thought that was going to be my whole life. I thought the rest of my life, I was going to be marching around with a drum everywhere I went. I loved marching band, partly because I was in the best part of a marching band, which is the drum line. And drummers, we, all, we, we inhabit our own little world, okay, especially when it comes to tempo and rhythm. And I don't care if the conductor's up there telling us how fast we're supposed to go, we do our own thing. <laughs> Partly because we love what we're doing, and when you, uh, my musicians know, when you are enjoying and you're getting excited about music, what do you do? You play faster. And so the drum line starts playing faster, and then the tubas who are right next to the drum line, they start following the drum line. And the trombones can't hear anything over the tubas, so they start following the tubas. And next thing you know, we've got the whole brass section on one tempo, and the the innocent flutes and clarinets and saxophones, they're on another tempo. And the conductor, and this is not a one-time thing, this happens a lot, the conductor would stop us and he would say, Look, you follow me or you follow them, the drums? You can't follow both. And that is the message of lordship. With Every sin, no matter how small or insignificant, you are choosing not to follow the direction that the Lord has given, and you're way off beat. Some more than others, but if you are not in sync with the conductor, you're not in fellowship with him. You are cut off. That's the situation. The curse of all who are born of Adam and Eve. To be a child of humanity is to live under the curse of being cut off from fellowship with God, to be under His condemnation. And so Jesus, in taking on human flesh, takes that curse on Himself. There's two verses we're going to look at right now, and I want you to keep them in mind because we're going to come back to them later. I'm going to give you the first half now. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus took on sin. When He was on the cross, it was our sin that God saw and punished because Jesus had none. Likewise, in 1 Peter 2, the Apostle writes, He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree. Both those verses. We're going to come back to them later to see what else they have to say. But they both start with the the explanation, the important truth, that when Jesus was on the cross... Our sin was with Him. He carried our sin with Him. And so Jesus was forsaken by God because on the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins. He was our sin. And so we see, like in verse 45, that from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. From noon until three o'clock there was darkness. In Scripture, darkness is the judgment of God. When the lights go out, God is judging That's because God is the source of light. He's the one who created light in the new heavens and new earth. We won't need the sun anymore because God himself is our light. And so when there's darkness in Scripture, when God curses a lamb with darkness, is because he's turned his face away. The light of his presence is gone. We see this, just one example I could list of many is Amos 8. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon... Same hour Jesus was crucified and darkened the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Darkness on the land because God is judging the land. Or think back to the plagues on Egypt. What was the ten, you know, there were ten plagues that God used to judge Egypt. What was the ninth plague? Darkness over the land. Coincidence or not, what followed the plague of darkness, the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. Darkness over Jerusalem as Jesus is crucified. What follows the darkness? The death of the firstborn is the judgment of God. Now why does this matter? Those of you that were at Sunday school. So what? Right? Right? That's the real question. What difference does this make? Well, the first difference is I want you to remove from your mind or your heart any view of Jesus on the cross that does not include sin being punished. The wrath of God for sin. I was reminded of this a number of years ago. There was a a denomination that was seeking to put out a hymnal. And they wanted to include the song we're going to close with today in Christ Alone. And there's a line in Christ alone. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they said, we don't want that line. We're going to change it. And they they sought permission from the songwriters to change that one line to say, On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Which is true. But the songwriters said, nope. We do not give you permission because if we do not see that Jesus died for our sins and endured the wrath of God, then we do not have a gospel. The wrath of God remains unsatisfied and still needs to punish. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's good news. We may not like the language or the way it's delivered, but it is essential to the gospel. Jesus is many things to us. Healer, comforter, shepherd, friend, king, defender. But before He can be any of those things, He must be our sacrifice. Because unless the wrath of God is satisfied, we cannot approach Him. We remain forsaken. And so Jesus is forsaken by God because God Condemns sin. Now there's a, a big glaring hole in the logic there. Or rather, just a significant question. Yes, Jesus is forsaken because God condemns and punishes sin. Jesus took our sin upon himself. But why? Why not leave us as we are and just start over somewhere else? Like my kids who are faced with a jigsaw puzzle that gets too hard or a Lego build that gets frustrating. You just leave it alone. And go do something better. You know, why didn't God, in faced with the, the sin and the failure and the rebellion and rejection of humanity, just say, yeah, I'm done with that. And go do something else. He would have been within his rights to do so. But he didn't. And that points to the deeper reason why Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Not just because God condemned sin, and Jesus took sin upon himself. Because God loves his children. God loves his children, and that is why Jesus was forsaken. There's this beautiful verse in 2 Samuel. Uh, Let me get the story before the verse comes up. Uh, Where David, King David, has had a a falling out with one of his sons, Absalom. And Absalom has fled and is in hiding and uh, is estranged from David. And David's kind of doing nothing about it. And it's causing problems in the country, and people aren't happy because they like Absalom, and they're loyal to David, and they, they want these two to be brought back together. And uh, finally, one of David's generals, Joab, has had enough. And he, he hires this woman to trick King David. And she comes and gives him this sob story about her sons. and One murdered the other, and now he's far away, and he's afraid to come back. And David says, let him come back. He won't be punished. And she says, now, how is that any different from what you're doing with your son? And then she goes on and preaches to him in 2 Samuel 14. One of those great cross-stitch verses that you never see up in people's homes. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Okay, that's not the great part. But then is the part that I really like. But God will not take away life. And He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. God devises means. God makes plans. He takes steps and puts his plan into action so that his banished ones that he loves will not remain forsaken from him. That's what we believe. God devises means, but why, why does he need to? Could he not just say, forget about it? Don't worry about it. No biggie. I don't mind. Well, no, we, we've already talked about that. God is light, he can't just forget our sins. He can't just pretend they're not there. We cannot fellowship. The purity and holiness of God would, would obliterate us if we approached him in our sin. Our sin has to be punished before we can fellowship him with him. And so, as first John chapter one tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness for God to forgive us. He doesn't just have to be loving. He has to be just. And so sin has to be dealt with. And that is why Christ takes our place. But the truth remains that God is not obligated to do it. Nobody's forcing His hand. Nobody's requiring. He doesn't owe us anything. Instead, He chooses it out of love. Now, we shouldn't think of Jesus being forced to die on the cross. He wasn't compelled to the god the father did not say you got to do this and jesus is all reluctant i don't want to do it i don't want to die no he, he grieved it was hard but no he chose to do it look at verse 50 jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit which to understand that better we need to look at john 10 Before he was ever at the cross, Jesus said this, I I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The cross was not a situation where Jesus was trapped and had no way out. The cross is not a situation where Jesus was overpowered. The cross is not a situation where God the Father or the Trinity says, look at this mess we got ourselves into. We, we love these people, but now we got no way to fellowship with them. Can you get us out of this mess, Jesus? No. The cross is the love of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, acting out their eternal plan to rescue His children from their sin and its consequences by having Jesus stand in their place experiencing the condemnation of sin, which is to be cast out, to be excluded, to be forsaken by God. And Jesus, in love, took that on for you. But not only that, He doesn't just take our punishment. And if you come to this church long enough, you're going to hear this again and again. The gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. It is forgiveness of sins. Amen and hallelujah. And we're thankful for it, but it doesn't stop there. It's not like Jesus died for you on the cross, taking your place, and whew, now I get out of jail free. Okay? I was reminded, uh, my wife and I saw this movie that she pulled up online, and I will never watch again. It was, you know, not a great movie. But there was one scene that kind of made me go, huh. And it's, it was a romance comedy action sort of thing where the main character had fallen in love with this woman, and then she got kidnapped, and then her wealthy and powerful father thought that he was responsible for the kidnapping and and so at the end of the movie um you know this couple that's in love they come back and and her father comes in with his with his goons because he's a bit of a bad guy and uh they take the main character assuming he was responsible for the kidnapping and they take him off and they they start just beating up on him and they pull out a gun and they're about to execute him okay real light-hearted romance comedy sort of stuff there and uh at the last second, you know, the, the the woman is like, no, no, I love him, he's, he's the one who rescued me, he saved me, don't hurt him, don't hurt him, please. And uh, the father realizes, oh, I, I've misunderstood the situation. And so he rushes over, just as they're about to execute the man, he's like, stop, 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 stop. And, you know, the guy doesn't get executed. It would have been a horrible movie if he had. Um, and many of us think that's the story of the gospel, that we were under a sentence of death, and because Jesus took our place, we don't have to die anymore. But that's the beginning. Because what then happened in the scene was this father realizing that his daughter had married and loves this man, embraces him as a son. Gives him lavish gifts. Welcomes him into the family. Gives him a future. See, that's the gospel. Not only rescue. Not just you don't pay the consequence of your sins. You are given amazing blessings because of it. We looked at two verses a few minutes ago. I want to look at the second half of both of those verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made Jesus, Him, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just about being forgiven, y'all. It's about being made righteous, about being a child of God. The blessings of being called by His name. Not just... Unforsaken, but welcomed. Likewise, 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Amen. But why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We didn't just get a stay of execution. We got blessing in abundance. The goal of Jesus being forsaken wasn't just to take our place in death but that we might receive abundant life because of it. Basically, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we, His children, would not be forsaken. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that our cry would be what we we confessed earlier. In Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the promise of God. We've gone from being cast out to being forever present with the Lord. And it would do us well to consider what that means. So let's consider for just a moment or two the difference it makes that Jesus was forsaken instead of us and we are not forsaken. We can start by thinking about that verse we just looked at. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If we were to zoom out just a couple verses and see what the author of Hebrews says to lead up to that, which we saw in our reading of the law this morning. Let's look at Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content and don't fear what anyone can do to you. That's probably enough for us to go home and think about for the rest of our lives. But notice how it's placed in this verse. It's a four. And Randy pointed that out earlier in our worship. Not keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have so that God will not leave you or forsake you. Not keep your life free of the love of money, be content with what you have, and then God will never leave you nor forsake you. No. It's the other way around. Keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have Because, for, God is not going to leave you and forsake you. Is it possible, and this is a rhetorical question, I know the answer is yes, is it possible that all of our hunger after stuff, and all of our craving for more and more and more stuff, and our fear that we won't have enough in life, and the anxiety we feel when we hear about the ups and downs of the market, or our fear of what other people can do to us, and our, our shame when we, when we don't measure up to other people's expectations. And our fear that we won't ever have the right circle of friends or attain to the right status in society. Could it be that all that points back to the need to believe the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you? That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us. That when we realize that we are not forsaken, And never will be forsaken. It instills us with a power to live in a way we never imagined. It removes fear. It removes the barriers to abundant life. That's what we mean at this church when we say living out the gospel together. The gospel is that Jesus died for you, took your place, rose again, gives you new life. How do we live that out? We recognize that it transforms everything about us. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what anyone can do to me. I want to tell you the story of Cinderella. And I want you to hang with me because there's a point to it. Now, you, you know the story of Cinderella. You know the Disney story of Cinderella, right? Right? You know the story of, of the young girl who, uh, whose father married the, the evil stepmother with the crazy evil stepsisters, and, sh- and then her father died, and she grew up being uh, horribly mistreated and abused by her stepmother and stepsisters until she meets the prince and is rescued. That's the Disney version. Disney made it a lot more palpable, a lot less tragic than the original. The Brothers Grimm, their version of the Cinderella story, the father never died. The father was there the whole time, and that is so tragic that in that story, the father witnesses the abuse and mistreatment of his daughter and does nothing. He does nothing. That's the tragedy of the story. And so when we think about the presence of God, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Maybe you're like me and you've all your life heard that as, well, that means God is here. He's with me. You think in, in pre- physical presence and space-time relationship, God's here. He's not going away. No. God's everywhere. There's nowhere where He is not. When we speak about the presence of God or the forsakenness of God, we mean His disposition to bless. Bless. Jesus dies on the cross and His concern is not, my God, my God, why have you left the room? Why have you physically departed? Because that didn't happen, it couldn't happen. The punishment of the cross is not that God is absent from Jesus. Being present isn't enough if God is like the, the Father in Cinderella. If He's there, but not doing a thing. We want God to be more than present. And that's what the promise of the gospel is. That what Jesus endured on the cross was not the disappearance of God, but the wrath of God. The punishment due to us. And so what we receive as a result is not just that God is here, but that as He is here, He is here as a loving Father. He is here to bless. He is here to fulfill. He is here to nurture. He is here to protect. As we're about to sing, No guilt in life. No fear in death. That's what it means that God is with us, that He will not leave us or forsake us. To be unforsaken, yeah, I made up that word, I think. To be unforsaken by God is to be sustained, to be blessed, to be embraced, to be defended, to be protected. And the Gospel gives you nothing short of that. But it can only do so if Jesus is forsaken when you should have been. And He did so because He loves you. Let us thank Him for that love and then let us together sing of that love. Our gracious Father, You love Your children. And without compromising one iota of Your holiness and Your purity, You pour out Your wrath on our sin. And yet Jesus stands there and takes it in our place. And He does so that we might be righteous. That we might have the light of Your countenance, the blessing of Your face turned upon us. We thank You for that. Holy Spirit, would You guide our lives in response to that Gospel. Would You free us from our fears. Would You remove from us the love of things that we'll not fulfill. Would You build in us a contentment and a joy that can't be explained in human terms, but which makes perfect sense when we see that we will never be forsaken. You will never cast Your darkness over us because Christ has taken it away. We thank You for that good news in our Savior's name. Amen.